Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So I just want to warn you before we all begin that in, in the name of sound quality, I have closed my window, turned off my air conditioning, and it is currently 95 degrees here in D.C. So I may be just a, a melted puddle by the end of the time we're done. I want to say, Quinta, you're my friend and I want you to be comfortable. And so I'm sad for you. But also as a Minnesotan who has to deal with months and months where it's like springtime in D.C. and there's still a freaking blizzard outside my window. All I can say is it is in the mid 70s and it will be like that for months in the beautiful upper Midwest. I knew you were going to rub it in. The listener should know that Quinta is in very in character fashion, fanning herself with a copy of the Mark Engels reader. Just to stay cool. <laughs> it's actually, it, it is a copy of my notes about uh, bar discipline for uh, people who were uh, filing frivolous election litigation. So it is actually in character. Well, there you go. You're the one person at Lawfare, one of you and Ben are two people at Lawfare that I don't get nervous when you're saying I'm taking notes about bar discipline, either for you or for any of our colleagues. <laughs> Little do you know, Scott. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Reasons in Paradise. Because I, one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, am still reporting here from Paradise in a tropical locale far to the south. But my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic, Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. Are not quite so lucky, stuck in their home offices, fighting back against the summer heat of Washington, D.C. in the summer, probably just absolutely gorgeous, of Minnesota. Is that right, Alan? Absolutely lovely. Just the best. Summer has finally come, and summer is just the most amazing four months of the year here. This is those six days where Minnesotans get to wear their <laughs> swimsuits on occasion. Is that right? Exactly. Where, where we come out as kind of the pale ghosts that we are and just try to soak up all the vitamin D for the year. Oh, I'm jealous. That sound, it, sounds, it sounds lovely there. I have to say, while I am in Florida and it's been very warm, it is actually a delightful mid-80s here today uh, and almost perfect weather if I hadn't had to spend the whole day inside working. But uh, hopefully that bodes well for the rest of my week. But Quinta, you are truly in the thick of it. You are in the midst of our nation's capital, most nation's capitally Washington, D.C. of activities, which is a true summer morass. Is that right? It is the worst, I am comfortable saying. And I will say, I grew up in New Jersey. I'm used to the humid, mid-Atlantic, mosquito-y summer. And when I moved to D.C., I thought, it's just a couple degrees of latitude. How bad could it be? Turns out, makes a difference. It is so much worse. I hate it. So I'm just going to be complaining about this endlessly until like mid-October. New Yorkers need to hear that because I feel like when I lived in New York briefly and people I know from New York complain so much about the New York summers and I'm like, you just haven't experienced a DC it's summer. those additional just degrees. And the bowl of humidity, like the 100 degree humidity. I say this as a native Washingtonian who loves my hometown, but my God, the summers can get real bad. But we don't have the beautiful scent of garbage. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> the, the heat island effect and the large pile of you know, fermenting garbage. Oh, to trash. Uh, exactly. We, we know how to, you know, take out garbage in DC. Is less of an issue. And the, um, and the metro 
the DC metro stations are air conditioned, uh, whereas the New York City subway uh, <laughs> is, is not air conditioned. Uh, the stations aren't, and that's a that's a big problem. They are also occasionally on fire here in Washington DC, though, so we do have to balance <laughs> that out a little bit from time to time. But that's okay. Not this summer so far. Fingers Look, crossed. Just turn the air conditioning up; it'll blow it out. It'll be fine. There you go. They're on fire in all American cities. We don't do mass transit well, but that's a different podcast discussion. <laughs> that's next week's topic. Well, as you can tell from the fact that we quickly diverted into a conversation about the weather, it is just the three of us here this week. No hosts have come open up new topics for us because uh, it's a little vacation mode. Everybody's coming and traveling today, the day after Memorial Day weekend. And uh, we're excited to get a little vacation space to stretch and ramble on a little longer with just the three of us as we dig into some very important topics into what we are calling in honor of Quinta's current state of being the Washington Meltdown edition of here at Rational Security. So our free three topic for the week, the first one, a very serious one, our gun epidemic. Last week's horrifying school shooting in Avalde, Texas, is only the latest high-profile incident in a wave of gun violence that is sweeping the United States. But most experts maintain that there is almost no chance Congress will pursue any serious substantive response in the near future. Why do guns play such a central role in American culture, and how do we make progress on combating gun violence in spite of it? Topic two. Finland and Sweden and Borg and NATO. See, Erdogan, Nido, Torgen, Dibi, Borgen. Bork, Bork, Bork. <laughs> to all our Swedish listeners. Apologies so, to our so Swedish sorry. listeners. So we love sorry. you so much. So much. But sometimes, you know, you just have to go with the Swedish chef reference. Sweden is moving closer to every day to joining NATO, as is its neighbor, Finland. If, that is, their applications are not derailed by Turkish President Erdogan or another objector within the alliance. What are the pros and cons of NATO expansion in these cases, and where should it go next, if anywhere? Topic three, revenge is a dish best served covered in a tacky amount of gold. Former President Trump's revenge campaign against Republicans who openly accepted his defeat in the 2020 election ran aground in the state of Georgia last week as a slate of Trump-backed candidates lost in Republican primaries to the incumbents who certified his election loss. Next on his target list appears to be Representative Liz Cheney, who is facing a hard primary fight in Wyoming. What should we make of this campaign and what might it mean for the future of rule of law and election security in the next election? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. On Tuesday of last week, um, as I'm sure listeners have seen, uh, gunmen attacked an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, killing 19 children um, and two teachers before he himself died. Um, I think that the incident is obviously one of many mass shootings in America and came only very briefly after the mass shooting in Buffalo targeting a supermarket in a majority black area of town. I will say that I personally was in the middle of recording a podcast about the Buffalo shooting when news of the Uvalde shooting broke. So it's sort of, you know, one one in a string of horrific incidents of gun violence in the United States. It also, I think, because the majority of the victims were children, has uh, unavoidable echoes of the Sandy Hook shooting and has caused some self-reflection among Americans about where we are as a culture in terms of gun violence and what can or cannot be done. It's also important to keep in mind, uh, I think a, a lot of the outrage has also stemmed from sort of evolving reports about the role of Uvalde police in failing to prevent the shooting. It seems like police essentially didn't enter the the school and, and held back from entering the classroom uh, where the shooter was for, for quite a long time, which I think raises some other questions about the role of police here, the role of 
interventions that are supposed to prevent this kind of, of gun violence, short of restricting access to guns more broadly. There are a lot of different questions here, and I think a, a lot of different ways that, that we can frame this conversation. I'll start by just, you know, putting out the question that I think seems to be sort of at the core of all of the news coverage of this, which is, to put it bluntly, will this time be any different? You know, I remember after Sandy Hook, there was a sense that because this time it had been children and that they were so young that something had to give. And obviously it did not. Um, Do we think that the energy, the political culture, the horror of what happened is such that the U.S. might be able to actually, you know, reform access to guns or influence some kind of gun control in some way? Or is this another incident where the tragedies just kind of pile up and politicians find themselves completely unwilling or unable to respond? Yeah, not not to be the bearer of even more bad news, but I think it's 100% likely that nothing will change. I mean, I just, I don't see any feasible anything that even even a symbolic anything seems actually very unlikely. Even the sort of milk toast gun reform that politicians in DC talk about in the wake of these shootings that wouldn't, you know, they might help a little bit, but they're not fundamentally responsive to the problem, which is that there are more guns than people in the United States, which is fundamentally the issue here, right? And obviously, we can disaggregate that into different classes of guns and the different kinds of gun violence. Obviously, mass shootings are the most, well, I'm not, I don't want to say most terrible necessarily. I mean, these are all gun homicides, um, but they're certainly the splashiest, perhaps the most horrifying to read, um, at least, especially the ones that out of these schools. Um, I remember reading about Sandy Hook and being horrified then. And, you know, what, what's changed for me is that I've had a child since then. And so I've, I've really been almost sort of physically unable to read some of the reporting coming out of, of Uvalde. But what's amazing is that we're not even able to take any sort of symbolic steps. You know, only a few days after Uvalde, the NRA held its annual convention. And it was, again, just another, I'm just going to say it, it's like, it a pornographic death cult about firearms. And it's really quite, quite amazing. I mean, you know, we'll talk about this, I think, I'm sure later on in the conversation, but it, it makes me think that talk about, quote unquote, common sense incremental gun reform is quite pointless, actually, even though I myself kind of both psychologically and on kind of all political issues, I'm a big kind of common sense incrementalist. Um, I think the the kind of cul-de-sac that we as a society have gotten ourselves into, both because of the sheer number of guns in circulation, as well as the unbelievable lock by gun, by the gun lobby, by gun rights organizations, just really by the gun ideology, frankly, um, in the Republican Party, means that I think what we're looking at has to be a a multi-generational struggle for firearm abolition, frankly, you know, of, of the sort that it took to get rid of slavery, of the sort that it took to pass prohibition, right? Obviously, that was those are very different policy issues, right? Um, and they ended in somewhat different ways. But that to me is is what this looks like. Otherwise, I just don't see how any of this is responsive. And and I'm I'm very tired, I think, of frankly wasting our time and energy trying to eke out some minor bit that, you know, will not be fundamentally responsive, even though in defense of all the gun, of all the gun control reformers, it's definitely the best we could possibly even imagine. Right. So no criticism of them. 
When you talk about a reform movement along the lines that you're describing, I mean, those reform movements required a constitutional amendment. Is that what you're getting at here? Yeah. And, and so the, I think this is interesting. That, I wanted to talk about the constitutional amendment later, but I'll just talk about it now. I, I think the question of a constitutional amendment is actually really important, but not perhaps for the reasons that people think it is. So, you know, obviously we have the Second Amendment. What the Second Amendment specifically meant was up for debate for a long time. Then in the famous Heller decision, the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment is not just about the importance of guns for well-regulated militias, but it actually created an individual right. Um, and so in the sense of legal decisions limiting gun control, they all stem from that original reading, and some would argue, and I would agree with them, misreading of the Second Amendment. Um, and that has led many to say, well, look, if we want policy to be responsive to this scourge, part of that has to involve repealing the Second Amendment, right? Or, or changing its interpretation by putting justices on the Supreme Court who will at some point overrule uh, Heller, right? Which is sort of tantamount to the same thing. Um, and as we see, can be done. See, for example, the imminent overruling of, of Roe, right? So that kind of strategy can work over the long term. This was most, I think, famously uh, made in an argument by um, uh, former Justice John Paul Stevens in an op-ed that he wrote after he left the, the Supreme Court. Now, the response that has been made by folks like you know, Larry Tribe, who's, who's at Harvard Law School, is that, A, we don't need to repeal the Second Amendment to meaningfully have gun control because it can just be interpreted in a more sane way. Uh, and two, um, it's actually a huge mistake to talk about repealing the Second Amendment because that plays right into the fears of gun rights proponents who are constantly opposing even the most minor of uh, common sense gun reform with the argument that, well, it's just a bunch of liberals who are trying to take away your guns. To which my response is, all of that is true, but I do think we're getting to the point where we as a society might need to engage in a multi-generational struggle precisely to take away everyone's guns, right? That, that, that this is a problem that cannot be ameliorated anymore. And that every day that we don't move in that direction is a day where more guns are in circulation, more guns are in circulation. We're going to hit 400 million guns, 500 million guns. Um, and so uh, we just have to kind of, uh, oh God, I was going to say bite the bullet, uh, very much no pun intended, um, and say that this is a problem that needs to have a binary solution, right? You cannot compromise with slavery. You have to you either have it or get rid of it, right? Uh, you know, the, obviously the obvious kind of historical response is, well, that didn't really work very well with prohibition. And we can talk about whether or not um, guns are more like uh, the problem of slavery or they're more like the problem of alcohol. But I think it's time we seriously start considering the possibility that um, the, the state of affairs has to be a, a world without guns, basically. So I, I will assume the role of just coming out and saying I disagree so strongly with fundamentally almost everything you've said <laughs> uh, in the last few minutes, except for the you know fundamental need to address this situation very, very direly. But I think there's an inclination, particularly on the left, that when these things come up to drive at what a lot of people see as the heart of the issue, which is the existence of guns themselves in our society, and to focus on that as the core of the problem. And I think that's actually fundamentally, I think it's both misguided and probably not very productive in terms of actually yielding policy that's going to improve the scenario on the ground. Misguided, I think firearms are at the heart of the problem. They are. Uh, they're certainly a tool that's used and the most, usually, most frequently used and most effectively used to achieve this sort of violence. People talk about cars or knives or whatever. That's all nonsense when people spit those talking points saying like the guns don't facilitate these things. They absolutely do. But to limit the ability of guns to facilitate these things, there's lots of gray steps before you get to abolition, which is the one that is both most constitutionally problematic 
and culturally difficult for folks to swallow and most likely to mobilize people in opposition to it. We have actually seen a huge number of legal measures installed, particularly at the state level, opening access to far firearms, making firearms more available in ways that aren't constitutionally required by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we actually saw an op-ed, I think just today or yesterday, by two former Supreme Court clerks, including Kate Shaw and John Bash, um, Republican for a John, Justice Stevens and uh, Justice Scalia, uh, who are on opposite sides of the Heller case, make the point, which is 100% correct, which is that Heller actually expressly says all sorts of regulations of guns are entirely appropriate, and that we have seen states actually roll back a lot of those restrictions. Heller basically targeted the fact that you can't prohibit people from having at least access to a handgun or some access to a firearm for home defense in access of their own home. Uh, and now there's a case before the Supreme Court that basically tries to extend that principle to personal defense, saying you have a right to carry a firearm around. That doesn't necessarily extend to owning dozens of firearms. It doesn't extend to owning assault weapons. It doesn't extend to giving protection from liability for gun owners and gun manufacturers when they uh, sell guns or manufacture guns or store guns in a way that is reckless and that results in those guns being able to reach out to commit different sorts of gun violence. And there's all sorts of areas where we can make progress and begin not play into the Republican uh, and particularly the conservative pro-gun side of the Republican Party, which isn't the entirety of the party, but it's a good big part, important part of it to say, you know, plays into the narrative that people are trying to take your guns away. And I really think that that is a place where Democrats have an opportunity. And it's an opportunity they've been wasting for the last eight years, frankly, really since Sandy Hook uh, and before that, too, where they have an opportunity to craft a narrative saying, you know, we accept that there is or at least we're not going to contest that there's space for a second amendment for people to own private guns. But, you know, there are lots of steps that we can take to regulate guns at least as much as we regulate cars, or at least as much as we regulate other tools that we accept are valid and may have a valid role in our society, but are dangerous or require certain safety measures. There are no constitutional uh, you know, objections to most of those measures. People will come up with some, but at least Heller doesn't suggest that those actually exist out there. Um, it's just a matter of political will. And I want to see a cultural fight. I think the cultural revolution has to be around thinking about guns in a different way other than this binary fight as to whether they exist or not, because that's a fight that, frankly, conservatives have a hugely advantageous terrain on. And the pro-gun movement has an advantageous terrain, both constitutionally and culturally, through the development of the last 30 or 40 years. I think this is a moment where I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that if they choose to do so, Democrats will have, may have the opportunity to seize on saying, look, this is something that's affecting your communities in conservative parts of America. We can do things like set up red flag laws, like limit, set up waiting limits, pushing the age of purchase to 21, little measures that we've seen some Republican states hint at and begin move towards already in the last three or four years where we've seen like a pretty dramatic spike in gun violence and particularly mass shootings. Um, now, will it get all the way to preventing these things? No, but it could reduce the incidents and stymie some of this really swelling tide of gun violence. Uh, the other thing I, I would also just think it's worth bearing in mind here is that mass shootings are the most horrible, most visible element of this. They're really a very small slice of gun violence. A lot of the gun violence is is really prevalent in terms of like a criminal uh, activities and, you know, whether or household incidents or suicide is a huge part of it. And those are things you have to get at through targeting things other than mass shootings. So having too much of a policy debate revolving around mass shooting doesn't really get at the heart of it. But I still don't think Actually, abolition gets at the heart of those things either. I think there's a lot of spectrum of gray you can get at that are more achievable, lower hanging fruit before you get that can have a real impact on even those policies or those outcomes uh, through public policy. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to 
underline the point that you made about suicides, which I think is really important and sometimes can get lost. So for the last two years for which we have data, I think 2020 and 2019, a majority of gun deaths um, in the United States were suicides. It's uh, 54% in 2020 and 60% in 2019. And I will say gun deaths by suicide are particularly harmful because they're more effective, frankly. It is less likely that you will survive a suicide attempt if you use a gun. And I do think that, you know, I don't want to draw attention away from mass shootings, but I do think that it is worth thinking about the way that suicide interacts with this problem and the way that measures that can limit access to guns, even if they might not limit mass shootings. So for example, you know, trying to buy back semi-automatic weapons is not going to happen, but limiting access in some other ways could genuinely save a lot of people's lives just because it's more difficult to take that step if you don't have access to a firearm. And I do think that that is worth keeping in mind, even though, Alan, I, I think I, I may agree with you emotionally that sort of more in a cultural sense needs to be done. Quinta, your point about suicide is, is really important, not just because it is, you know, in terms of pure numbers, the largest part of gun violence, but because I, I think it, it shows a problem with Scott's approach, which is, let's say that we could get some agreement around dealing with mass shootings and specifically those sorts of weapons and the, those most deadly weapons, the assault rifles or the you know, high cal, you know, the high capacity rifles, you know, what, how do you want to cat categorize them that are the problem? Now, I don't think we can get agreement on that. I'll talk about that in a second, but let's say we even could, but that wouldn't actually be responsive to the problem of suicide, right? I mean, another tragedy here, again, not taking anything from Uvalde is that we as a society only manage to express this sort of collective grief when you have these truly the most horrific situations. But what about the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who die because of gun violence by suicide or because of, you know, quote unquote, isolated homicide, right? We are completely incapable of any sort of policy around that. And so to me, this just shows the the fact that these the sort of policy solutions that are even notionally on the table are not responsive to the scope of the problem. Now, again, that assumes that they are on the table, but I'm not sure they are, right? I mean, Scott, you, you seem very confident that Democrats can craft some proposal that will be responsive in some way, but I don't see any evidence um, that that sort of proposal would take have any take up from the Republican side. Right. In part because they seem to have completely bought into the idea that any gun reform is tantamount to repeal of the Second Amendment and total gun confiscation. If they're going to think that, OK, then then let's then let's actually have that because uh, let's have that debate, because then we can actually solve the problem. Right. Look, I, I am, again, by my nature, not a moralist. I am by my nature kind of a real politique instrumentalist, incrementalist, get... I don't think you are, Alan. No, 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 no. <laughs> no but, point over the course of the show have I ever been convinced but, of but, this. No, 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 but that's my, that's, my, that's my point, right? Like, as a general matter, I feel like I am totally, totally in on that, right? And so if there was some compromise to be made with gun culture, right, that would actually meaningfully move the needle, I'd be happy to make it. Um, so I'm totally with you on that, Scott. I just don't see any possible compromise. And so at this point, I think there just has to be a, 
a large national quote unquote conversation. It's going to be pretty unpleasant. It's going to be more like a large national fight uh, about this. That's going to last for 20 or 30 years. Um, but otherwise, what are we doing? So, you know, I think we have to like think about what sort of policy measures there seems to be space to build around here, not just in like Republican Party talking points, but actually in terms of public opinion, right? Like the dynamics around gun control tend to be that actual gun control measures are fairly popular when you pull them expressly, but they're not high priority. Most people don't really see the need for major gun re regulation reform except when you see these big high profile incidents where you see a spike in interest and it gets raised kind of as a priority among other policy measures among voters to say, okay, now we do want to do this, particularly when it's like local to their community, which is why you do see responses to little things, whether it's like banning no bump stocks uh, after the Las Vegas shooting, whether it's Florida raising the age to purchase certain types of firearms after shooting there. You know, we do see these small measures. I think they're mostly a lot of them are symbolic, responding to political pressure, but there is a political pressure there and an appetite for those measures. You know, what I would like to see do, and Democrats in particular do, is start to say, well, let's talk about these measures, right? Let's first make the case to the public that gun policy currently is a problem. Maybe guns as a whole, there is something that you are something either we can't do away with or we shouldn't do away with. People feel differently about that. But how we approach them now is a problem. And this is what we've actually seen hat work in the auto industry, right? We have a lot of policies specifically saying, look, automobiles are manufactured in a way that aren't as safe as they should be. We need to have basic rules about how people access them, how they're handled, and, and that people need to be trained in how to do it responsibly. And that has actually dramatically, that's a big reason why firearms are now a higher, more common cause of death among children in America, I believe is a statistic, um, as of 2018 or 2019, than automobiles. Part of it is because firearms are becoming more prevalent, gun violence becoming more prevalent. Part of it also is that cars have become a lot safer uh, over the last 30 years and even over the last five or 10 years um, because of this emphasis on safety measures. You know, I think building and targeting those sorts of policies where you disable the culture war argument to the extent you can can have dividends. It means Democrats have to take the risk, though. They have to say, we need to build a case to the public for this set of policies and believe that our polling numbers show that while people may not see this as a priority, they at, at core agree with us. And we can make a case that is a priority by drawing attention to the real social cost of this violence, not just waiting for big high-profile incidents, trying to seize what momentum we can to get a couple of measures across the, across the bow and just writing that to the extent we have it. I don't think we've really seen that from Democratic politicians at a high level for the few years. We see Chris Murphy and a few other people who are very committed and very vocal about this and are real leaders on this issue. They deserve immense credit. You don't see a lot of buy-in from the rest of the Democratic leadership because sustained on this issue, making it a real priority, right? Uh, we saw, you know, President Biden made a statement saying you'd support a wide range of measures going into his presidency, but they haven't been included in a legislative practice that the administration has brought forward yet. They've got other agenda items. They've got priorities. They have to arbitrage. They have to say, well, we think we can do more on these other issues. And that's what they focused on. I get that. But I want to see Democrats actually say, we're going to put together a package and we're going to give it the political capital that it needs to maybe move it or at least see if we can move it and build the case to the public and get there. That's a lot lighter left than a constitutional amendment. It's a lot easier fight to have, I think, over banning firearms, which uh, hits at the cultural touchstone that it feeds directly into the rhetoric that people are, are seizing on. And there's other policies to build a case around here. And that's why I think we need to start seeing people doing more. And I'm I'm cautious optimistic we're going to see it because this is not an isolated incident. Like these mass shootings are happening more common. They're killing more people. The numbers are actually like really astounding for the last three or four years. Um, and I don't think 
people in red states are immune or completely ignorant to that. Politicians who uh, they elect are immune to that. And I think we might see some pressure here. It also helps that NRA, frankly, has become a shell of its former self in the last few years as a result of litigation in New York and elsewhere. And so there's just not that co as coordinated an effort in spreading misinformation about a lot of these issues and efforts. So, uh, you know, that's, I don't know if that's optimism so much as maybe hoping there's a window of opportunity, but that's an approach I think I find much more feasible than, uh, you know, focusing on, on, on an outright ban, which may morally make a lot of sense to a lot of us, but it just doesn't seem politically in the cards at all. So obviously we could talk about this for <laughs> forever and, and we should continue to talk about this. I, I guess my only response, Scott, is, I think that we have we we disagree here on the potential utility of culture war, right? You know, to frame something as culture war, I think, is to implicitly say, yeah, it's kind of unserious. It's not it's not responsive to the actual problem, which I think is usually the case. And I generally, again, I'm very uncomfortable with culture war. I'm like a standard technocrat. Um, but I think that the issue around, you know, quote unquote, repeal of the Second Amendment or gun abolition, whatever, it's actually all downstream from, I think, what we need, which is a culture war around this issue. In our culture, there is far, far, far too much, frankly, tolerance for uh, gun culture, right? And, and I think it's time that that those of us who are not part of this start viewing it as, I think, what it increasingly is, which is largely a source of death in this country, uh, rather than anything that has particular uh, benefits. And so what I'm calling for is less, you know, that someone introduces articles, you know, uh, repeal, to repeal the Second Amendment in Congress tomorrow rather that we change our orientation from viewing this not like cars, right, which are fundamentally useful things that have some drawbacks, but rather we view it as, you know, at best, something like tobacco, right? And ideally, something that frankly, just does not have a place in a civilized, in a civilized country. And I think this will take a long time, and I think it'll make things worse in the short term. Um, but because I am fundamentally skeptical that in the short or medium term, any sort of policy proposals that can get through can really change the needle much. Um, I think that trade-off is worth making. But obviously, that depends on a lot of empirical assumptions that I may be wrong about. I do think an important point to note here um, that's kind of orthogonal but still relevant to the discussion we've been having is uh, some really important reporting by the Washington Post that the gunman in Uvalde had a history of sending violent threats to women online. Uh, there's been a fair amount of research done that people who commit mass shootings um, are far and away uh, likely to be male and extremely likely to have engaged in some kind of domestic violence or expressed hatred towards women. It's very common that they commit uh, act of violence against a female friend or relative before they go on to commit a mass shooting. So the shooter at Sandy Hook, uh, the Uvalde shooter, did did that to female relatives of theirs. I do think that if we are having this discussion about violence, gun control, culture in America, that has to be a part of it. And yet every single time when this connection, you know, is pointed out after a shooting, it seems to kind of, you know, bob below the surface. So I'm hoping that we can keep that in mind as well. So from really bad uses of guns to, you know, in some circumstances, appropriate uses of guns. Let's talk about NATO expansion. One of the ironies of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine is that despite all the talk from Russia and some of its apologists about how really this is all the West's fault and really this is NATO's fault and the whole point for Vladimir Putin is that he needs a sphere of defensibility uh, around his borders, uh, it does seem like one of the major geostrategic implications of the war is that uh, Vladimir Putin is about to make his NATO problem so, so, so much worse. 
because as Scott mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Sweden and Finland uh, have formally applied to join, uh, and it looks like that uh, they will likely be able to, despite uh, some complaints and roadblocks that Turkey is throwing up. And we can talk about the nature of those and uh, how to deal with them a little bit later. Um, so the, the great conclusion here is that Vladimir Putin's uh, failed attempt to invade Ukraine is going to end up with the uh, NATO's border with Russia increasing by about 850 miles, which is, of course, the length of Finland's very long border with Russia. Strategic genius, indeed. Um, so uh, I, I want to start with the specific with the, the NATO expansion part before we get to the potential Turkish issue with that. And so I want to start with you, Scott, and ask, I mean, this may be a dumb question, but is uh, Sweden and Finland's request to join NATO just really as simple as it is a straightforward result of Russia's aggression in Ukraine? Uh, and if so, why to them is NATO membership so important all of a sudden after many decades of refusal on their part to join NATO, um, despite having, um, when it comes to sort of informal cooperation, uh, pretty close cooperation with NATO uh, to this to this point? I think it's a good question, but I don't think there's much doubt that this is very much a one-to-one consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, this formal step. The reason why this is a step that they're taking now, but and how much it makes a difference, I think relates to actually a point that Russia has made in its uh, efforts to downplay the step, which is that, you know, Finland and Sweden have always been close to NATO. Uh, they have military cooperation, military relationships. And so there is an effort to you know, there's always been this idea that, well, they're kind of in the NATO camp, even if they're not actually like members of NATO. Um, there are certain limitations that that puts on the level of coordination uh, where, you know, the extent you're going to station NATO troops, uh, things like that. But it wasn't necessarily prohibitive. A lot of it was just about the Swedish and Finnish domestic political appetite. And that's what I really think has changed here is that the experience of Ukraine has demonstrated to the Finnish and Swedish people that no actually membership in NATO makes sense. There's a risk that that's going to limit our relationship with Russia, potentially risk aggravating a little bit Russia. But whatever marginal risk that may be, Russia poses a big enough threat anyway without that provocation that it's worth having the uh, insurance. And particularly, I think at this point is that Russians, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really operationalized the NATO line in a way. Like it is the fact that states like Poland are a member of NATO, why Russia will not take action against Ukrainian supporters or efforts there, right? I think it would be a lot messier situation or is a lot messier situation for those other states um, where uh, like um, Moldova and other states are concerned about Russia taking action against them um, because they are like not necessarily in that right line. And so, you know, all of a sudden being a member of NATO is a big difference because it means you're underneath the very clear security umbrella that Biden himself has laid out and NATO leadership has laid out saying, if it's a NATO state, we are going to bat 100% Russia. Don't have a doubt about it. And we're positioning ourselves to do that more effectively than we have in the past. But now not being under that umbrella is a much starker situation than it looked like it was before February. Um, And I think that's what's really driving this choice on their part. So in preparing for this episode, one of the articles um, that I believe, Scott, that you suggested was a really interesting piece by uh, Zachary Selden in War on the Rocks, um, who was the Deputy Secretary General for Policy at the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. And one of the things that I found interesting about it is he's basically writing that uh, Finland and Sweden have a really different incentive for joining NATO than the countries that joined in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union did, that now, you know, Finland and Sweden are strong militaries, they punch above their weight, they're really joining as a security guarantee, whereas the countries that joined in the 90s and early 2000s were more just kind of like, wanted to be part of the club, you know, they wanted to hang out, which I I think, 
gets to something interesting about, you know, the big overarching question of like, what is NATO actually for? Um, after the the fall of the Soviet Union, and and I mean, I know Russia's perception is um, again in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union is sort of uh, it's the we hate Russia club. But as as both you and Alan were pointing out, uh, by perhaps treating NATO in that way, they appear to have very successfully made NATO that once again, which I believe is what we call on the internet a self own. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So we have Sweden and Finland that want to join. It would have huge implications. It would add two serious militaries to NATO. It would turn the Baltic Sea into basically a NATO lake. But for that to happen, the rest of NATO has to let Sweden and Finland in. Uh, And Turkey so far has expressed its plan to object to Sweden and Finland. So, Scott, let me go back to you on this. What is Turkey's complaint and uh, how serious of a veto is this? Is this something where where Erdogan is going to draw his line and stick to it? Or really, he just wants something out of this and this is all just kind of politics? So I think to understand what is happening here, you have to understand a man named Recep Tayyip Erdogan who is such a unique character in a region, because I lump, I lump Turkey in the Middle East, maybe not entirely fair because it is a bridge to Europe, but you know, in, in a part of the world that has a lot of, of personalities in politics, he is perhaps the most notable. Um, and I have, for better or for worse, had my, my professional career crossing into his lane multiple times over the last decade or two. Um, and he is somebody who chronically cannot give up even the slightest bit of leverage without trying to manipulate it to his own advantage. Uh, That's true domestically. It's very true internationally and has been throughout his entire time in power, particularly in the last like 10 years where Turkey has really tried to punch above its weight in terms of regional dynamics and as a regional player. Uh, And its weight is pretty substantial and it's still trying to bat a little bit above that, uh, I, I would argue, in most cases. Turkey does stuff like this all the time, and it's really willing to uh, broker and put pressure on other states and bring up awkward circumstances and make a point to try and get even small concessions at times. Um, I think one of the most telling cases, actually, was, was it's really interesting is the Jamal Khashoggi uh, killing, where we saw the Erdogan government play this incredibly, frankly, savvy because they did it quite well regime where they were leaking classified audio um, that they had from their private surveillance devices inside the Saudi consulate to Erdogan-affiliated newspapers drumming at the political scene, even though they maintained a very mooted public line. And that's the sort of games that they play that's really telling. And it's part of the reason why Erdogan, like, 
does not have any international allies. Turkey has, is part of an important alliance system, which is NATO. No NATO state really likes Turkey. It's a source of constant friction in the alliance. There are lots of restrictions on aid, assistance, arms sales that don't exist for other NATO members, at least not most other NATO members, that exist for Turkey with other parts of the alliance. And it's because Erdogan's constant uh, manipulation for advantage, willingness domestically to do things that are not consistent with, you know, liberal democratic values by any stretch of the imagination, like arresting hundreds of thousands of academics and imprisoning them for several years, uh, like targeting, um, you know, a variety of mostly imagined conspiracies, not entirely, but mostly imagined conspiracies through different parts of the state apparatus and people conspiring against him. So, you know, it is a really, really notable, I mean, this is not entirely surprising. I actually had the thought, and I wish I had tweeted it at the time when we started talking about NATO and Lawrence, but it's like, I wonder what Erdogan is going to do with this. Um, because he does have just this kind of unique voice in this role because of the unanimous consent requirement. What he seems to be bargaining for, and there's an op-ed he actually personally penned in The Economist that came out just yesterday yesterday, I think, or yesterday when we're recording, Monday for, for when you're listening, where he basically ties it all back to what he's describing as Swedish and Finnish support for, although I think that's probably overstating it, the PKK, which is a Kurdish nationalist movement in the east of the country, close cultural, historical, and ideological ties. They described a very interesting ideology. We can say that for another segment later. That's super interesting to worry about, read about. But uh, that ties it with the YPG in uh, Syria, which are forces that the United States has had been allied with against the Islamic State. And now, still backs as they kind of control a part of Syria, even as Turkey has invaded Syria, more or less really just to take territory away from them uh, and push them away from the Turkish border. Um, Turkey has had this kind of obsession with this group for many years. They face a legitimate security concern. The group has you know, committed acts of terrorism. The United States has them labeled as a terrorist group. The UK government does. I believe the European Union does. I could be wrong about that, but I'm not, I think they do. Uh, and so, but at the same time, they also are involved with a lot of political activities that people sympathize with and the YPG uh, and Syrian Kurdish movement that's nominally separate by some accounts, although most people accept they're actually pretty closely related, uh, you know, has done a lot to rehabilitate their international image. And so Erdogan seems to be leveraging this to say, well, I want to see some more laws banning the PKK, banning funding for the PKK, banning their ability to operate in Finland and Sweden. To my knowledge, Finland and Sweden are not hubs for PKK activity or essential to PKK operations. You know, they are not Syria or other or, or northern Iraq or other parts where where the group more plausibly operates. It is really just a way to Erdogan to get a political win, try and get some legitimacy for his case that the PKK is a legitimate security threat. And he's also priming the pump for the fact that Turkey looks like it may be preparing another military operation into northern Syria, um, has been engaged in other military activities in northern Iraq against this group which sometimes get ramped up for legitimate security reasons, sometimes a little bit for domestic politics. I don't, I haven't been tracking the situation quite close enough to know where this is on that spectrum. Long story short, I suspect Erdogan is, has real demands. There's going to be some effort made towards these demands on some front, but I doubt they are so written in stone for the measures that he wants because the actual policy impact of those measures is not important enough for him to really go to bat over them. I suspect he'll satisfy himself with some strategic and largely symbolic wins somewhere in the world, whether it's the United States or some other party, you know, tamping down support um, for these Kurdish elements in some other way. So we'll just have to see. Yeah, just to follow up on that, that, that also seems to be my read of, of at least what the kind of NATO experts and Turkey experts are saying. And that's, I guess, a good thing, all things considered, because it is really important if Sweden and Finland want to be in NATO to get them into NATO. At the same time, I do want to be cognizant of the fact that the the Kurdish question, as it were, is hardly a simple one. Uh, and uh, the, the Kurds have a lot of good arguments on their side. And it would be 
a shame if this ended. And, you know, maybe this is just the way that uh, international real politique sometimes ends. But it would be a shame if this ended with the selling out of the Kurds, who are a people and have a language and a history and uh, are in a very difficult position, not having their own state uh, and have not been treated particularly well by Turkey, even if uh, you know, Turkey and Erdogan in particular has its own legitimate concerns about uh, the Kurds. So, you know, if if in the end the international community has to, has to again, sell out the Kurds a little bit, um, for this, maybe that's worth doing uh, in the unpleasant politics of international relations. But I do think it's worth flagging that as a very unfortunate feature of what is a good thing overall in the expansion of NATO. I mean, Scott, do you think that that will happen? Like, how how long is Erdogan going to hold out here? Is this something where he needs to make the stand and he can be given kind of a token win and then accept it and move on? Or is this something where you think he's really going to dig in? I kind of suspect there's going to be a token win and he's going to have to move on. The big point of tension with Turkey, Turkey relationship with the rest of NATO up till now has actually been Turkey's relationship with Russia, right? Uh, over buying different types of military technology. That relationship just got way more complicated in the last few months. Uh, Turkey's idea that it could play itself you know, off of NATO by leaning towards Russia and trying to build a relationship on both ends and get a le- little leverage over both. It's like a very classic kind of Erdogan move, at least in, in my view, although there are better er- Erdogan watchers out there. Nick Danforth, I love uh, on this particular issue, uh, among others. Uh, you know, it's worth keeping an eye on. But my sense is that he doesn't actually have as much leverage as he thinks in this situation because the broader geostrategic picture for Turkey has gotten a lot rougher because Russia is just not going to be a feasible ally for it if it wants to continue being on the right side of U.S. sanctions, U.S. export controls, allied export controls, allied sanctions. What for what might be like the next 10 to 20 years of history, because those sanctions are no signs of them going away. And, and most United States and its allies have strongly suggested that they're staying in place even after the Ukraine conflict tamps down or becomes more constrained, um, or at least big aspects of them, particularly in the military sector, which is what Turkey was leaning on. So I, I kind of suspect they're going to have to accept some symbolic nod uh, to some extent and get a win. Uh, Alan, I think your point's really well taken um, regarding uh, the Kurdish situation generally, if particularly historically, anybody who's studied the region or spent time in Iraq or these countries, I think uh, you end up with a lot of, a lot of sympathy for the Kurds, uh, although it's worth also bearing in mind the Kurds are not like unitary actors. The PKK is is different from, nominally different from Syrian Kurds, like a little bit of a di- doubt about how much difference there is there. They actually are very different from, um, you know, the KDP and dominant parties in northern Iraq that have played kind of leading role in Iraqi-Kurdish relations. There's different sort of Kurdish movements all throughout Kurdistan, meaning the, the areas where Kurdish peoples live uh, in Iran, Turkey, Syria, Iraq. So it's it's an, a historical movement that it's it's people tend to talk about the Kurds as the Kurds, as if it's one movement. And that's just not the case. And in particular, it's worth noting, like the PKK has kind of nationalist ideas. The YPJ does. But the YPG has, has come out and said, you know, we actually don't want to secede from Syria. Um, they've very much said we're trying to stay part of the Syrian state. We just want greater regional autonomy. And so it's 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 a it's a muddier picture on a lot of different fronts in that regard. I, I suspect again, like, you know, we'll see some measures that are more about underscoring the fact that they are still terrorist elements, um, which is still the United States, UK, and I believe EU positions, and that that warrants some action against them so long as they keep engaging activity. And Turkey will be able to cite that to say, and this is why we have to go, you know, take these actions against the PKK. But the United States still backs the YPG in Syria. There's no signs of that changing. I doubt that's going to change anytime soon, in part because of the dynamics you've described. And so I don't think I think I think Erdogan probably came into this knowing that the wins he's going to get are are pretty nominal. And he's just trying to get some low hanging fruit while he has the opportunity. 
Speaking of opportunistic politicians, let us turn back to our famous opportunistic politician uh, here in the United States, former President Donald Trump, uh, who has been engaging in a uh, something of a slash and burn revenge campaign uh, throughout the Republican Party, supporting funding, coming out and endorsing candidates in a variety of GOP primaries, trying to displace many of the Republican politicians. And there weren't that many, uh, but those Republican politicians who played a role in either uh, confirming the results of the 2020 election that former President Donald Trump lost, or essentially uh, being willing to support uh, coming out and saying that the president lost it in public statements, or in some cases, uh, like with Representative Liz Cheney, actually participating in and supporting the uh, January 6th commission that's investigating the actions that happened around the Capitol insurrection, including President Trump's role in them and the role of his supporters and close advisors. But this effort came, ran aground uh, this past week in the state of Georgia, much like President Trump's 2020 presidential campaign itself, where we saw three statewide officials, Republican officials who played a role in confirming that Georgia had, in fact, gone for President Biden in 2020, all fairly comfortably defeat their Trump-backed opponents in the case of Governor Brian Kemp by a margin of, I think, close to 50%, maybe over 50% in the final polls. I have to go back and check the final numbers, but by an extremely comfortable margin. So it raises this question to say, well, what is Trump's grasp on the Republican Party? What are its limits? And how did he choose to use that influence moving forward? It seems almost certain that his next big target in this revenge effort is going to be Representative Liz Cheney, who is playing a leading role in the January 6th Commission, has been outspoken uh, about Donald Trump being a threat to democracy uh, and the fact that uh, Republicans should be opposing him for that reason, even though she has a very, very strong, uh, solidly conservative, very conservative voting record as a member of Congress. And there are signs that he is making some progress there. She is facing a very difficult primary race that at least some preliminary polling information, although notably conducted by her opponent, um, but it seems to be treated credibly by people who know more about this than I do, show her trailing by 30 to 40 percent in the Republican primary going uh, a few that is still a few weeks away, months away at this point. So Quinta, let me turn to you first. Um, what should we be making of this road bump that President Trump seems to have hit in his control of the Republican Party. Is this a sign of real resistance? Is it meaningful when it comes to the threats to rule of law and uh, the uh, security of elections that are really motivating a lot of concerns about President Trump, including with Re Representative Cheney and those who oppose him within the Republican Party? Or is this really just a bit of an outlier case for a variety of reasons and, and not a clear indicator that Trump's influence in the party may have some limits. I think the fact that the Georgia races swung so decisively against Trump is is really notable here, especially because Trump had so per, you know directly targeted by name uh, Kemp and and Raffensperger, who are no you know squishy liberals. <laughs> to be clear, I mean Kemp in particular has been the the subject of a, a lot of ire from the Democratic Party, but I do think that. The races in Georgia, I don't, I will hold back from opining too much on, on the nitty gritty of Georgia politics and admit that I, I don't know the quite enough specifics to, you know, really dig in here. But it does strike me as notable that there is a clearly a strong Republican constituency in Georgia for, you know, quite conservative candidates who are not only not Trump, but have been targeted by and opposed by Trump in, in particular ways. Whatever we make of that, sort of morally, I think it is an extremely good thing that we have now two people in place 
uh, potentially for the governor and the secretary of state of Georgia, who uh, will, you know, presumably not be happy to go along with the kind of, you know, post-election chicanery that Trump was trying in 2020. This is obviously, this is setting aside uh, Kemp's record on on voting rights, which I'll, I'll divide as sort of pre-vote rather than post-vote. On the other hand, we also have in Pennsylvania, uh, Doug Mastriano, the uh, a Republican nominee for governor endorsed by Trump, who is really like full bore January 6th. You know, the election was stolen. Trump won and has made some pretty disturbing comments about his willingness to interfere with the vote count. Um, not that he would frame it as such in Pennsylvania uh, in 2024. So I think that, you know, I was certainly worried about Georgia in 2024. Uh, my worry has now shifted northward to Pennsylvania. So I don't think there's a, a clear clear lesson here of, you know, Republicans have decisively rejected Trump or Trump is a paper tiger um, or Trump, you know, wins everything yet again. It seems to me like, you know, it is possible to win and win strong as kind of a, a I don't really know whether I would say like Raffensperger's anti-Trump, but non-Trump Republican. But also clearly, if you're a candidate like Mastriano, you can get a pretty significant bump of support. Now, you know, this conversation may look very different depending on what happens in the the general election. And I know that Democrats are kind of hoping that Mastriano is so out there that he will lose. Um, I will just note that that was also what some people said in 2016. So <laughs> that's a that's a bit of a, a bet with high stakes. So I don't know, is the short version. Um, it, it seems like election integrity is going to be something that we're going to have to keep an extremely close eye on. Perhaps, though, we can breathe at least a little bit easier over Georgia. Yeah, I agree. I feel a little bit better for the future of our democracy, given how the elections in the last couple of weeks have, have shaken out. Though I also agree with Quinta that it's hard to know exactly how to interpret it, because one temptation is to say, well, really what you're seeing here is that incumbency effects are very strong. And incumbents in particular do can do a really good job of pushing back against Donald Trump, right? Uh, Kemp is an example here. I mean, Raffensperger is the huge example, um, in particular because Raffensperger, unlike Kemp, actually went after Trump. That was part of his, he committed to the bit, right? Uh, Kemp tried to sort of, you know, talk about other stuff and Raffensperger just said, nope, I think Trump's wrong, bad, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the fact that he was able to win is is a good thing and shows that maybe incumbents can succeed. And that also then explains why Mastriano, who is just really just crazy out there, was able to to win in Pennsylvania. Again, there's no there's no incumbent there on the Republican side. The problem then is, well, what's going to happen in Wyoming? Liz Cheney is, of course, an incumbent and a very high profile one, which ordinarily would go in her favor, but there's a real chance that she might lose. At the same time, and here we're kind of analyzing a prediction, but I, I'm not sure how useful the Cheney outcome is going to be one way or the other. In particular, even if Cheney loses, which I think would be a real shame, I'm actually not sure how much that tells us. I think, again, putting the morality aside of what Cheney is doing, which I think is a deeply noble thing uh, in, in being on the January 6th committee and all of that, if you are going to so vocally attack the leader of your party and by implication, many of your own party members, you are going to annoy enough people and so if she loses on that basis, again, I think that's really unfortunate, but I'm not sure how much that tells us overall about Trump's hold on the Republican Party. I think the real question is Trump versus Trumpism, right? That's the issue here. 
you know, Trump is like Erdogan, right? I mean, these are very unique, colorful individuals um, that have a lot of political strengths, but those political strengths also create real political pitfalls, right? The problem with Trump is that in addition to having a certain kind of um, political and media genius, he's also very lazy. He's short-termist. He's, he's quite bad at his job. So even if Trump is quote unquote, defeated um, as the key center of the Republican Party. The question is, what's going to happen to all the populism, all the authoritarianism that that has unleashed? And that I see no indication whatsoever of going away. And here, I mean, Exhibit A, I think just has to be Florida, right? I mean, obviously, we haven't had any elections there recently. But DeSantis's control over Florida politics, the actions he's taken recently, the the, the kind of more Trumpy than Trump in a particular more competent Trumpianism um, that DeSantis is showing, what some have called the uh, urbanization of Florida, right after uh, Hungary's Victor Orban, I think suggests that while it's fun to watch Trump lose in his endorsements, that shouldn't give us too much confidence that the Republican Party is healing from its dalliance, or in some cases, outright uh, embrace of right-wing populist authoritarianism. I also think it is, and I kind of hinted at this in before important to emphasize that you know you can reject Trump and still outright reject Trump and still you know be in support of politics that move in that direction. So Brian Kemp is not Ron DeSantis, but I mean I mentioned earlier his I guess I don't know I would call it a checkered past um, when it comes to uh, voter access in Georgia, and so you know some of these people who are newly non-Trump, let's call them Republicans, you know, are not necessarily people who you would normally want on your side in the grand battle for democracy and are people who have kind of, I would argue, drawn a line in a a bit of a weird place. Um, And that also complicates my feelings. I do agree, though, that DeSantis is sort of clearly the standard bearer for whatever we're calling this, Trumpism without Trump, something like that. You know, what I think is interesting about this is that this goes back to what has been a, a point of frustration for me with a lot of anti-Trump Republicans, which is that they keep resigning and they keep leaving, meaning there's no one on the stage <laughs> next to the pro-Trump or Trump-leaning candidate to argue the alternate alternative position. And here it gives me three candidates who did not do that and a one. And I think that's actually a really, really, really important symbolic step to come out and say, hey, look, we can, with various stripes and various approaches, you know, Kemp really like didn't take Trump on Trump as squarely, Rasenberger did, as you guys have already mentioned. Um, but nonetheless, you can be a candidate who at least leans more strongly towards rule of law and sound elections and the democratic process and still have space in the Republican Party with Republican voters. And I think that's actually a really important message to send. I mean, I don't think politicians, particularly members of Congress, I mean, the House of Representatives in particular, like are super independent thinkers, uh, frankly, a lot of time when it comes to politics. You know, they're trying to read the tea leaves in their districts uh, and nationally with fundraisers, with elites that kind of guide money towards them and guide other sorts of support, media support towards them. And so there's just big, strong herd effects around a lot of issues. And showing that the tide may be ebbing a little bit in a very public way, I think is really important. Another question I have for Liz Cheney is, I wonder what happens if she does lose, which looks very likely right now. It looks like she's going to lose the Republican primary. There's a lot of talks about, oh, maybe Democrats will come over because they defeated a state law measure that would have prevented Democrats from coming and switching to vote in the Republican primary but or GOP primary. But now Democrats, uh, but now that that bill was defeated, Democrats will be able to do that. But it doesn't look like there's enough of them to really sway the election at the margins or anything like what this internal polling suggests. But Liz Cheney is like Dick Cheney's daughter. 
she's has a very, very high public profile in Wyoming, a long history from a political family there. Question I have is, is she a Lisa Murkowski type that could stand as an independent? And I think she might be, especially if she's got a national profile to pull in the fundraising dollars that she has. I just don't know, you know, how much of the Republican primary base reflects the electorate there. But it strikes me that if there is a possibility there, and certainly she seems to have the pedigree, the historical roots, the regional ties that a lot of other candidates don't to make that more feasible, then picking a fight with her like this could be a little bit of a Pyrrhic victory if you lose the GOP primary only to face a really, really tight even you know, fight within a state that is just so soundly Republican. But it's a possibility. And I hope, frankly, she goes to the mat, as she seems inclined to do, to fight this every inch of the way, because you have to have this fight out in the political sphere, in the arena with these people, if you're going to get anywhere. And that fight falls to Republicans right now, because the fight's happening in your party. I hope you're right. I will say about whether your point about whether or not this kind of opens the door for anti-Trump Republicans to try to hold on to office rather than resigning. I think another factor that is also really important is the threats and harassment that people get. Um, so I don't know if there's been any reporting about this on, on Kemp, but Raffensperger, for example, has, there's been plenty of reporting about just the really astonishing wave of death threats he got after the 2020 election. There's been reporting about Republican members of Congress holding back and resigning because they couldn't take just the wave and waves and waves of threats from pro-Trump constituents who were angry at them for not backing the president enough. Um, so one aspect of this is, can you win? And obviously, I would imagine for you know professional politicians, that's quite important. But another aspect is, do you want to stay in this role knowing how unbelievably awful it is going to be for you and for your family? Um, and I think that gets to a, a, you know, a, the other aspect of the problem, which is sort of what do you do with a constituency that's going to hate you? <laughs> Even if Trump no longer holds quite as much sway over the Republican Party, you still do have his voters. Well, folks, we are going to have to leave the conversation there for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder in the days to come. Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So Memorial Day, the start of summer, I like to start it with a big barbecue. And so I cooked 20 pounds of pork shoulder, low and slow style yesterday. It was delicious. But the object lesson I have is not that, it's the tool that I used which is something called the slow and sear. It's an insert for a Weber kettle. Um, I used it initially on my 22 inch Weber kettle before I upgraded to my bigger Weber kettle, but it works on both. And it basically, uh, a lot, it's, uh, it, it, it stacks your charcoal in kind of one zone and then it has a water pan that you fill with water so as to regulate your temps at the low and slow kind of 225 to 275. You add a couple of pieces of wood in it. It makes kind of like legitimate eight hour, 10 hour, smoking adventures much more feasible. And I will say as, as a, a Jewish boy from Long Island, um, I did not grow up in, uh, you know, Southern barbecue culture, um, but I love it so very much. And so the moment I bought a house, um, the first thing I did uh, was we bought some patio furniture and I bought a Weber kettle and I bought this thing because I wanted to teach myself, how, teach myself how to do like legitimate barbecue. And it is amazing. It has been so much fun to play with the last couple of years. I'm going to buy a pellet smoker at some point, uh, which is kind of the next level. Um, but for the moment, for $150, 
you can get this insert. It's amazing. Um, if you want uh, Slow and Sear, if you're out there and you want to uh, advertise, I will happily shill for you. Uh, you have totally changed my barbecue life. So that's my object lesson. Pick one up and uh, you know, pick up a Weber kettle and enjoy amazing, amazing barbecue. Better than anything you can get at a restaurant, honestly, unless you live in you know Texas. Um, uh, you can do it at home. This is Alan desperately trying to make up for that whole take the guns away. It's part of his part of this conversation earlier. I never said I don't like, you know, I, I, I like I don't like some cultures. I love other cultures. I love barbecue culture. Just don't bring a gun to my barbecue. I think we're going to have a lot of grill talk coming up as we hit the summer months because I've been having a lot of fun with the grill here on vacation. I'm going to tell you a secret for your vegetarian listeners out there. It's coming to you in a couple of weeks. I'm still working on a few techniques, but grill pizza. It's amazing. I got to break it back. My grill pizza techniques back out. First time this past week, it went great. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. But that's not my object lesson. Quinta, I'll turn it over to you next for yours. So from the, the barbecue to the dishes you use to eat the barbecue, I have an extremely stupid object lesson because it was a terrible week. And I'm going to share something that gave me a small amount of joy. When moving recently, I displaced one of my prized possessions, which is the little magnet I had on the front of my dishwasher that says clean and dirty on it. And you can rotate the magnet to tell you whether the dishwasher is clean and dirty. And I was very sad that I had misplaced it um, and went to purchase another and discovered just a truly excellent Amazon review that I am now going to give you a dramatic reading of. This revolutionary device features dynamic magnetization, sticking seamlessly to any metal appliance surface, which is so much better than the last version that had to be manually held up against the dishwasher. The functionality, where to begin? This clearly shows the state of the dishes. No more Schrodinger's cat for this dishwasher. This came with an easy to follow 350 page user guide in 14 languages, showing the cultural sensitivity inherent in the product. There is no escaping it. This is the best clean dirty indicator I have ever seen. I'm giving it only five stars because that is the top rating. It should get 5,000. My life's dreams have been fulfilled. <laughs> I just, I just want to say like the, one of the wonderful second order consequences of the internet is that it's created a whole new set of artistic and literary genres. It's a very like particular the, form like, of humor. Like, like the YouTube essay is like a yeah. legitimately new form of artistry. And I got to say like the Amazon review is, it's just amazing. It's, they're so good. There needs to be a book. I feel like, and I feel like Amazon oh. are the people to do it. <laughs> <laughs> these things together. What would the review of the Amazon book of Amazon reviews? You get this. It's, it's a nice like hermeneutic it's yeah. cycle. Yeah. But I do recommend uh, getting one of those magnets for your dishwasher. Makes a difference. I have one of those magnets. Or I did in my old condo when I had a roommate, not a wife. Uh, <laughs> but now I'm the only one who does dishes, so I know what the state of the, I know what the state of them is for better or for worse. Well, for my object lesson, I have a quiz for you two first. Does the name Matt Martigan mean anything to you? Absolutely. Sounds not. Italian. Do you know what a Nelwyn is? Um, a what? it's a drag. It feels dragony to me. A what? Does the sentence only a real sorcerer can use it, not a stupid peck like you, make your blood boil? What is happening? I'm lost. If not, I liked fantasy literature as a child. Well, this is not fantasy literature, but it's close. This is. Quotes from the classic 1988 movie Willow, the George Lucas and Ron Howard sword and sorcery fantasy movie. Um, That was a huge part of my childhood, even though I was pretty too young to see it when it came out, but discovered it several years later. And it is phenomenal. Actually holds up shockingly well. 
even if you watch it now, some of the special effects are like a little dodgy. I watched it when I, I, I finally talked my wife into letting me watch it one night while we were, I was homesick um, a couple of weeks ago and she hated it, but I was so thrilled to see it again. I Why did you have it. to let you watch it? You're a grown ass man. Watch whatever you want to watch. We decided movies collectively <laughs> okay. and like, you know, she wasn't excited about it. I wanted her to watch oh, it. Oh, I see. So she, she had to watch it. Okay, she let me badger it. her into watching it. I also don't have a lot of me time to watch movies by myself. I don't know about you, you Alan, these days with the new father thing. Endless vista is a free time for me let me tell you exactly well i am super excited because just this past week amazon released a sneak preview trailer of the sequel series of willow that is coming out 34 years later (laughs) almost my entire lifespan (laughs) passed by between that movie and the sequel which stars warwick davis the original actor who played willow uh val kilmer couldn't come back because he has health issues but evidently his character is gonna be back a lot of the other people are back I'm super excited. We are living in not just like the heyday of amazing science fiction television movies, but also amazing fantasy science fiction and television. Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, Power Rings, Game of Thrones, you know, Wheel of Time, they're both fine. But I'm really excited about this Lord of the Rings series. And now I'm really excited about this. Watch this preview. Go back and watch Willow and check it out again. Learn who Mart- Matt Martigan is and why he's just so damn cool. Why Val Kilmer really was one of the best. And uh, I'm looking forward to the debut of this new series coming in the fall. Well, I got. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for this, which is just incredible. <laughs> Highly recommend everyone look at it. There was there's there was a series of novel sequels written by Chris Claremont, who of like Uncanny X Men fame, and George Lucas. I read back in the day. They were wild. The two of them just decided, you know, that whole movie that was real popular that's based off. Let's kill all those characters and start <laughs> over again, except for one on a plot that has nothing to do with the original plot. Fortunately, it sounds like they are not doing that. <laughs> They're actually rooting a little more closely in the original movie. I'm super excited. So worth checking out if you're at all a sword and sorcery fantasy type of dude or lady. Uh, I'm a big fan. Scott, never change. Never I never change. will. I've been trying and I can't. <laughs> so just I'm the just sheer levels of nerdery here are just like off the charts. And I include oh. myself in that. Oh, it's exceptional. It has been two weeks of nerd vacation. It's very exciting. But sadly, for better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work, the work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the programmatic failures that led us to leave so many partners and others behind when we left Afghanistan Allies, which is now featured prominently much to our joy on Apple iTunes as one of its uh, premier podcasts. I can't remember exactly what you call it, but something like that, which is really, really super exciting for us. Please check it out. It is some of the best work our team has ever done, uh, for which I can take absolutely zero credit because I was not involved. But other people were, and they did a great job. Be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 